The emergence of COVID-19 has forced the legal industry to rapidly undergo a fundamental transformation. I'm Jack Newton, CEO and co-founder of Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal software provider. In each episode of Daily Matters, we'll explore what this new normal means for law firms, how legal professionals can find success while working remotely, and how lawyers can best serve their clients during this unprecedented situation. We're joined today by Keith Lee, Chief Marketing Officer of Case Status and founder of Lawyers Mac, which is an online Slack community of how many lawyers now? Uh, right around 400. Wow. So, Keith, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Good to see you. Keith, how are you and your family doing? Tell us a little bit about where you're situated, maybe what uh, COVID-19 related orders are in force in your jurisdiction and, and how you and your family are, are managing in that. Sure. Um, I'm down in uh, Sweet Home, Alabama. Uh, so deep south. Um, my family is good. Uh, it's just my wife and our one son. Um, my wife is a pediatric surgical nurse. She works in a recovery unit. Um, fortunately, just not to go into the, all the details of that, but she, she hasn't been in the hospital in a month and probably won't be there in the foreseeable future, just in terms of staffing and they've stopped elective surgeries. And there's, right. if there's one area where they have too many nurses right now, it's actually in, around surgery. So right. um, that, that's just, I mean, one, we're just good about that. Two, um, in terms of, yeah, the, just uh, in legally industry, because, you know, I am a, I am a lawyer. Um, it was the weirdest thing, actually, this past week. Got an email from the state bar with, travel paper authorizations from the Alabama Supreme Court entitling uh, me as an attorney to travel through restricted air. It was really? weird. I was like, I'm, what am I in Soviet Russia in like 1984 right, or, right. or like East Berlin or something? I was like, I was, I was like, I just got travel papers from the government. That was, that was a weird feeling. Um, that, that seems strange to me. Uh, but outside of that, I mean, Everyone's healthy. We're sheltering in place. We haven't. Mm -hmm. We're not going out anywhere, um, and are just you know keeping our head down. I'm working a lot. My wife is a hundred percent working as well in terms of being a homeschool teacher now, um, and keeping our son going. So um, we're good, you know, in good spirits, but uh, just just adjusting to this new normal. Well, that, yeah, I, I think we're all going through that that rapid period of change. But I'm glad to hear that you're all. Uh, healthy and uh, maybe to to move on to my next question, would love to hear. And, and this might be the only question I need to ask you in this interview. Uh, Probably I've been so. Following you on, I've been following you on Twitter, and I know there's there's a lot on your mind right now. But uh, tell me what's most on your mind right now. Um, most on my mind is the fact that uh, <laughs> I think I think we can all agree that there is a leadership vacuum in the world right now in politically business-wise there, there is an absence of direction in my mind and a, and a real like honest look at what this is mm -hmm. and i i mean and again i did make a pretty big thread on twitter about it the other day uh going delving into the 2008 financial crisis in terms of at least within the united states uh, for people who aren't aware, to kind of recap, there used to be 15,000 small and community-sized banks in the United States in 2008. 18 months later, there were 5,000, right? In the, in the course of a year and a half, uh, the amount of community small-town banks dropped by two-thirds, which is an incredible number. Um, and if you start to think about this now, I mean, <clears throat> I've been spending a lot of time uh, speaking to my friends who are doctors, uh, reading BMJ, reading JAMA, uh, looking at materials, even like private materials from uh, uh, BCG and McKinsey and like the leading strategists, business strategists from around the world and trying to wrap my head around all of this and really diving into the data. And, and I, told, I told you, Jack, before, like I'm, I'm in deep into a writing it's as significant as something as I've ever written in the 10 years mm -hmm. of me writing about the legal industry um, that this is just completely being downplayed 
in my opinion. Um, and I'm not trying to say that to be scaremongering or, or anything of that nature. But I mean, th the fact remains that this has been the deepest economic dip by any, in any recorded history that has ever happened. It's just like happened like that. Yeah. And, and I mean, the deepest so and most swift. Swift, know, right. So most yes. recessions, economists are arguing several months into the recession around whether we're in a recession or not. And, yeah, and here, like you said, it's, it's clear as day. We're in a recession. We're, we're, we're in a recession overnight. overnight. So, so two days ago, uh, James Diamond, who's the CEO of JP Morgan, which is the largest mm -hmm. Wall Street bank on the planet, um, he released his annual letter to his shareholders. And I'm going to quote it. Uh, At a minimum, we assume that it will include a bad recession combined with some kind of financial stress similar to the global financial crisis of 2008. Yeah. So that it that is from the mouths of babes, the biggest banker on the planet, flat out stating where we are um, and some other interesting data. So there's one. Can I share my screen just for like five yeah. seconds? Yeah, um, absolutely. And keep in mind, we, we have uh, the, the Zoom recording we put on YouTube and sure the podcast that that we stream out over audio only channels. So. Sure. Do your best, baby, to describe what you're putting on your screen as well. Sure. So on my screen uh, right now, do y'all see this, my screen? Just to double check. Uh, sorry, Derek? give me a second, Keith. I, uh, yeah. Yes, I can see your screen. So this is uh, a listing of S&P 500 bear markets since 1929. This is from, this is like the historical data. So... Again, but there's no doubt we're in a recession. There is no doubt we're in a bear market. So if you want to look at historical data, you should, let's go back and look at past bear markets. So that's, that's what I'm, for the people who are only listening, the average length of a bear market of, of peak to trial, meaning so from when it started to when it hits the bottom, is since since 1929 when they begin recording this is 518 days that's a long time months to break and then also in the chart it has months to break even again for the average uh and let's let's not even go to 1929 when things were really dire if you go to the average from 1946 the average time to to break even meaning from when the recession started to get back to where you were the the, the months average to break even is 25 months right? That's well over two years. Like we, this is not a, and this is, and that's not when we were in here. I'll stop sharing my screen so we can talk. And this isn't when like we were all hiding in our homes. This was when we could still right. go have jobs and stuff that compounded by the fact that again, like we were saying right before the call, there's two ways out of this, a, a, a vaccine or a cure, which we should all pray, hope, whatever you want to do that, that we have some type of uh, scientific medical breakthrough and we get that sooner than later. But if you, but again, eight, if you just, 18 months out, 18, right? 18 like months. Best 18 case, months. that would be best case scenario. a land speed record for a vaccine that's tested for human safety, yes, right? Yes, exactly. That, that would be perfect. That, that, is, that is the fastest it could, whoa, amazing. So that's 18 months. That's, that's, that's one way out of this. The second one, which is even more grim, is herd immunity. Right. That means we all say we're comfortable with some number of people dying and we're just going to have to get through that until enough people have the antibodies into their system that we can begin to progress out of this. But it, that's also a I mean, that's why we're flattening the curve. That's why we're that's why we're sheltering in place. That's why we're doing social distancing. That's why we're not having large groups of people gather in in any significant quantity anywhere because we were trying to not overwhelm the health system to give us time to where we have a slow drip of herd immunity, which again, 18 months sounds about right. You take that 18 months and you combine it with the, the, the historical data that I just was just talking about and showed with the recession. It's blowing my mind that people yeah, yeah. aren't more concerned so, about it. Yeah, don't disagree. There is a huge concern uh, to be had around right. how long this will last and how 
how deep this will go and, and where we where do we find bottom and how long does the recovery process last? But a few, a few questions around the perspective you have. Is there a third option? You talked about a vaccine, you know, which, which I think just the, the laws of physics or the, the laws of chemistry, maybe better put, mean that this is 18 months out. Uh, there's herd immunity, uh, which like you, like you said, has a, a huge human toll associated with it. Um, and even the jurisdictions like the UK that initially went in that direction, I think rapidly realized this is, this is not the path yep. to take. Um, is, is there a third option along the lines of what South Korea did uh, and, and China to an extent as well around massive widespread testing and contact tracing that can get us on the other side of this more quickly than, this, than the other two options? Sure, so definitely uh, one, so one, <laughs> I don't, I think anyone who believes a single thing that the Chinese government says is foolish. Sure. I mean, there, there's, there's just no, no question, getting, wildly underreported, uh, yeah, underreported and, impact, yeah. deaths, yeah. everything. I yeah. mean, that's just don't, I, it's worth not, it's not even worth trying to have a, to me, I don't think it's even worth trying to have an intelligent conversation yeah, we can about because assume that, that to be true. I think you're right. Yeah. So, so let's look at South Korea. Cause that is accurate. Like South Korea is on board. My wife and for, for reference, my wife is from South Korea. Um, so I like have family there. Um, and the, the impact there has definitely been mitigated with their experience of uh, SARS and everything that they had. So they, they mm -hmm. did initiate. Yeah. Super Incredible infrastructure. Testing. Great infrastructure. Drive testing. Don't even leave your car. Yeah, they. I mean, they've locked it down. Well, here's what they got: what fifty, sixty million people in 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 the state of Alabama, <laughs> right? Like South Korea fits inside my state, right? Okay, yeah. you can't extrapolate that, at least in the United States or in Canada, uh, over that many people, over that large of a geography, combined with we don't have this amazing technical infrastructure. Uh, and then there's just the cultural factor of, you know, it's a homogenous society in which, you know, everyone, uh, you know, everyone's Korean, <laughs> you know, right. the, like, and they, there is a, there is a cultural national unity that cannot be undervalued in the way. And I think a, you mentioned SARS and I think that's a super important point. The cultural response to something like, COVID-19 yes. was so much more severe because they'd been through SARS yes. and it had impacted them. Whereas the United States had, and even some governors of some states still have a very blase attitude about this and let's hope it blows over. And I, I think in China and in many of the Asian countries that were impacted by SARS, they were equipped and ready to respond. So yeah, sounds like yes. you're not holding out hope for, for testing and contact tracing, helping us you know, contain uh, the spread and, and move back to some semblance of normal more nope. quickly. The, the other question I had was um, around what these BCG and the Kinsey type reports sure. describe as the shape of the downturn, right? Is this going right. to be a V-shaped downturn or a U-shape or an L, yeah. right? So maybe you can walk us through those different shapes of the recession uh, and what the downturn will look like. And I, I think there are some perhaps optimists that say, hey, it was uh, an aggressive and abrupt start to the recession. And the corollary is it will be an, an abrupt and swift recovery from the recession. And we're gonna be in a, a V-shaped v. recovery. Uh, tell, tell us what your take on that is. Sure, yeah, so quick recap, a V, and this is talked about with charts, a V is a rapid decline, short bottom, rapid ascent. The next is a, a U, which is a more gradual decline, still pretty sharp, an extended bottom, and then a more gradual recovery. And then finally is an L, which is a, a, a deep decline, and then a protracted long bottom, or a continual decline with a very, very, very slow recovery. Um, Don't yes, want to know. No one wants an L. The L L is the Great Depression. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and so certainly optimists were hoping to optimists were hoping to to see a V. Like, okay, we had this boom, and then somehow we're gonna be able to handle 
this crisis in some immediate way and bounce back. Uh, But again, and I I know we're just talking and again, I, I'm, I'm going to show my work with all this here in the next week. I'm I'm so looking forward to, to, to reading it. I I think the other, the other argument for the V sure that the optimists may hold and sure. uh, I, I count myself in the category, by the way, of, of being a pathological optimist and maybe just need to be to be an entrepreneur, entrepreneur to an sure. extent. But of course, I think some of the optimists take the position as well that um, the underlying economy, unlike the Great Depression, unlike the 2008, 2009 financial crisis is healthy. And this is this is a medical response with impacts on the economy that are transitory. But when the medical response and the analogy I've heard used that I actually felt was actually a really good way of encapsulating this crisis is that the economy was put in a medically induced coma to save the patient, essentially, right? The the, the mankind's well-being, essentially. And as soon as we bring the economy out of that coma, when we know it's safe to do so, we're back to normal. What, what's the what's the pessimist uh, take arguing against that maybe rosy view of how things progress? Sure, and and I and I mean say that like I'm fundamentally an incredibly optimistic person. I mean I I I mean I want to hope for the best, you know, hope for the best, plan for the worst type of yeah. scenario. Like I I I'm just taking what and looking. And by at, the way, I'm not trying to imply that you're a pessimist. By the way, Keith, yeah, I, I, I think that. The, the world could look very grim with a very realist-based view on what the prospects are. Sure, and, and, that, and that's my take on it, is I'm looking at it, and I'm being like, all right, how real can I look at it? Because I think the more real you look at it, and the, the sooner you look at it in the face, the sooner you get to acceptance, the sooner you can move on to, well, now what? You know, yeah. like, if, if you're just constantly putting on rose-colored glasses and trying to stick your head in the sand, which again, I'm not saying that's what you're doing, but you know, I, I just like, I really feel like it's important to just look at it in the face, understand it, and then say, okay, if this is the scenario, how can I best navigate it going forwards? And, you know, I think, so I, I completely agree with you. The, the fundamentals of the, particularly the American economy are, are so sound. We're in a good place. Uh, the, the problem I have with the, the coma analogy is that, uh, is really around um, uh, if this is, this is starting to be just outside of my wheelhouse and I'm going to be careful, particularly with all my medical friends, is it really around the, the basic reproduction number or the, the viral or the viral reproductive value of right. COVID? Meaning, like the, the R not. Yeah. The R not, how many yeah. people like it can then go. And so this is like, okay, we put you in a coma, but, as long as the virus is out there in society and we, again, we don't have a vaccine and we don't have herd immunity, well, we're probably going to have to keep putting you back in a coma every few right. months. Right. And that's the issue. So I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a V. I'm not an L actually. I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm, I'm a lumpy U <laughs> is where I'm at. Yeah. Um, Which is, I, I, I think the lumpy U kind of looks like the Imperial college paper that came yep. out, uh, two or three weeks ago talking about this idea of staggered social distancing, like basically yes. go through this very aggressive yes. stage right now and then go back to some semblance of normal. And then in some localized areas, there'll be another outbreak. You need to go back to social distancing, but for less time. And that will be until there is a vaccine in this right. staggered social distancing world. Yes. A hundred percent. So we're and and with that being the case, that is a, uh, Again, uh, I think this, I think it was either McKinsey or BCG Productions, again, with the, the best outcome scenarios where, where the public health response has been the best, viral control is high, uh, uh, economic poly resp- response has been good. They're still saying that in the best case scenario, they still think uh, a public, you know, like gatherings should still be capped at 200 people. Right. That, that, that's the best scenario. That's, that is literally the best case scenario is still capping gatherings. So schools, universities, uh, to, concerts. Yeah, school, universities, concerts, sporting events, uh, large businesses. Uh, yeah. that, that's still, and that's where I start to get not pessimistic, but realistic about our recovery time and the mm-hmm. length of the recession and the length of the bear market 
is that uh, what people can't, that has massive job implications. And now as we're, we've been talking super macroeconomics, let's get this whoop, down to the legal industry. Okay. Yeah. Well, that means these people aren't going back to work, which means, I mean, right now in particular, no one's going anywhere. So MVA, so motor vehicle accidents, gone. Uh, yeah. Workers comp issues, gone. Slip and falls, gone. Anything that is works around the personal injury world is, is sinking. That, that commis- you know, along with that, that means insurance defense, they're drying up in terms of their work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, and then if you're a firm that does even just transactional work, like, uh, and, your, and your clients are small businesses, small businesses are going to go out of business. They're, I mean, it's just, I mean, oh, we can Business only, lawyers, there's less incorporations yeah. happening. There's yeah, less IP lawyers, there's less patents happening. Less patents. All, M- widespread M&A, implications, yeah. Yeah, M&A is cratered. I mean, I think it's in comparison to this quarter last year, I think it's dropped by like 32%. Yeah, um, VC investments cratering. Yep. Oh, come here, come here, come here. This here, is my here we David. go, guest appearance. Just appearance. I got brought uh, banana bread, so they're. Baking. Oh wow! What an incredible touch. That's that, Aaron, that Aaron Levine will be happy to know your uh, <laughs> your child made an appearance. I feed. saw that. I saw Aaron. Uh, that was so sweet. I loved it. Um, you know, but uh, yeah. I mean, I, so again, tease this out from all these large scale economic factors. <clears throat> again, this was sort of my point to, to a lot of people lately is that the legal industry is an ancillary support industry, right? Law firms inherently don't provide products or services that people just go buy. Like, I, I'm yeah. not like I want to go buy this phone, or I would need a cup, or I want someone to, to mow my lawn. Uh, the only time someone needs <laughs> a business is incorporated is if the business is doing something. The only time you need to sue somebody is if you've been hurt on the job or you were hurt in an accident. Like all that stuff becomes suppressed through the economy and that's going to hit law firms. Like yeah. there's, there's no getting around it. Um, yeah. and, and that's where it, in lawyer smack, um, in private lawyer forums around the internet, uh, Reddit, Facebook groups, listservs, uh, you know, I've been, I've been doing a lot of listening in the past month and trying to watch because I, again, I'm a lawyer. I get to go into all these places and sort of see what people are talking about. And, uh, you know, it's, it's people, everyone agrees, like they're, they're firing their staff because this is one of those problems. <laughs> this is such a huge issue. So, so it's like law firms. So uh, in a recession, in an economic downturn, one of the first things you do is you cut costs. Well, all right, well, how can you cut costs? Well, Let's, you know, typical business will divest itself of things, you know, do this, that, and the other. The, the most, and essentially dispense of assets. Let's start to sell off assets. Well, a law firm's most, and this is a, not me, this is a classic thing for law firms. Well, a law firm's most valuable assets go down the elevator eight every day and out the door, right? Yeah. Law yeah. firms don't have assets. The assets are the lawyers. Yeah. So you can, only, you can only lay off staff for so long before all right, well, you lay off associates. I mean, again, it's the whole finders, minders, grinders, pyramid system. Um, you eliminate the bottom. The only people who make it in the pyramid are the people at the top. And that's, that's going to keep playing out. And the, the other thing, so that's, that's human leverage, right? That's law firms, professional services firms, you know, came up with the idea of, or not came up with the idea, but have, have worked on hu- human leverage for the longest time. The, you know, another type of leverage that a lot of people use and is more recent, but is, is capital leverage, right? So like the case status who I work for now, we, we raised capital here recently. Clio raised a significant round here at the tail end of, this, uh, of 2019. Mm-hmm. Law firms can't raise capital. Maybe you can right. get a loan, but you can't go to a, to a venture capital firm or some private equity guys because, they, because regulatory speaking, they can't take a piece of a law firm, at least right. in the United States. You know, UK is different. Australia is different now in terms of uh, there's been deregulation. But here in the States, a law firm, law firm gets, all right, their assets or their peoples, they can only get rid of so many. They can't raise uh, capital. The only other form of leverage. There's, and, their and, second biggest expense is probably their lease, which they're also lease. locked into for five, 10 how long. years plus. Exactly. 
Exactly. It's the only other and the, the most modern form of leverage that is why you exist and why my company exists is, is, is M&Ms, which is media and, and microcode, which is, and that's enabled by the, the Venn diagram of, of Metcalfe's law and Moore's law of the internet that computing power doubles every 18 months. And then the value of a network is, you know, N squared as you add yeah. more to the network. Yeah. So, and that is technology. That's a, that's a, kind of lengthy way of saying technology is this new form of leverage, meaning you adopt certain tools, you can, and just in the way that you would leverage people or you leverage capital via computers and the internet, you can, it's a new form of leverage. And, and that's where <clears throat> this whole conversation, again, I'm trying to encapsulate a lot of thoughts to get to this one point that I, I think certainly people, a, a lot of the legal industry has just gone straight to like use technology which is fine. And I agree with that premise, but it wasn't just, I think a lot of lawyers, it's putting the cart before the horse. Like they need to understand the situation, which is why I've approached it the way I have. I'm like, wait a minute, just telling people that they need technology is not enough because I think they don't fundamentally understand the situation they're in. I think people are still, I think people in general, just the world in general, let alone the legal industry are still, they got a little bit of an ostrich approach to this. You know, they've got their head in the sand and they're just fingers crossed. Hey, we're going to get, like you said, to, we're going to get to Easter and we're going to be done. Woo. Yeah. You know, and, but, and that's not the case. And to your point around leadership, I, I, I think yeah. that what is lacking, even at a worldwide level, but certainly I think at a national level in the, the U.S. is an answer to the question what's next? Where do we go from here? And when does this end? And no, nobody knows. And I, I think that's what makes the anxiety levels in this crisis so amplified is unlike the 2008, 2009 crisis where we had a punctuated event um, and you knew that, hey, there's going to be a road to recovery and we don't know how long that's going to take, but you kind of knew here's where the bottom is and it's uphill from here. Uh, even 9-11, it was a punctuated event and had widespread impacts, but you kind of knew it was only going to get better from the point those two towers fell. And, right. and it took some time, but we, we, we got there. And I think what is so anxiety-inducing about this crisis is just that lack of certainty around what lies forward. And to, to extend the, the comment you made on uh, investors or banks not being able to take essentially equity stakes in law firms, you couple that with the typical partnership and business model law firms use where they disperse 100% of their cash on hand on at least a annual basis, if not more frequently. And they're kind of set up to fail in a, in a black swan event because they are structurally unable to, to navigate that from a, from a capitalization standpoint. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, uh, to, to tie into, to let's, let's keep channeling Taleb. Uh, uh, law firms are fragile. They are not anti-fragile. Law right. firms are set up to be fragile. That, yeah. that is the entire nature of it. Yeah. They expend all the capital. That, the, another thing I've been trying to survey around people is how much operating capital do a lot of these small firms have? Cause again, I'm not concerned about the Amlaw 200, right? Sure. They, they got it. Um, a lot of them don't got it. Some of them are going to, uh, but it's the small firms. Do you start up language? How much runway do they have? You know, right, last yes. two months, three months. Right. Yes. And so the, the runway, the operating capital, I mean, for a firm that's really prepared one quarter is, is, yeah. is the answer I'm getting, meaning they can last three months and, yeah. and we're, we're one month into it. And I, I understand, uh, there's going to be lots of the economic stimulus patch package. I mean, certainly things are coming down the pipe that dear God, please lawyers are so bad at business. <laughs> um, they are, they just are, please don't be bad at business. If you're a lawyer, don't think you don't need that stuff. Go get it. Like take advantage of that stuff, extend your runway as much as you can. And, and so you can get through this because otherwise, I mean, the, I, I just keep coming back to the sense that I do not see a way through this without a number of small firms 
either closing or merging or, and you know, I think the, at least in the States, the legal industry is a gray industry. It's a very graying industry. Mm -hmm. That's a nice way of saying they're old. Um, That a lot of, I think a lot of the people who are 70 plus might see this environment. And if they've been smart at all and they do, and their 401ks or whatever, their retirement accounts weren't too toasted by all this, I think you'll probably see people piecing out, you know, the- We've seen it already. Yeah, I, I know law firms are shutting down. Yeah, we've yeah we've heard it on the front lines at at Clio. I've heard it through interviews on this podcast. Yep. And if there was law firms that were anywhere near that that liminal state between succeeding and failing, they've tipped over to failing and just thrown in the towel, right? And yeah, I think that's uh, unfortunate on so many levels. But but m- maybe to 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 pivot the conversation in a more hopeful direction because I, mm-hmm. I agree with you like things are gonna be worse than the average person thinks and yes. this is going to be more protracted than the, yes. the average person thinks and I, I think if you're a realist just looking at the data at hand and the fact that recovery typically takes two to three months for every month that you're truly in a recession um, this is going to take time and we're talking about I think on the order of years to get back to yes. to normal so I, I think you and I are very much on the same page in terms of, you know, maybe what might be deemed as a, a pessimistic take on how long this will recovery will, will take when we start our recovery, which hasn't even begun yet, by the way. Uh, but in every downturn and in every recession, there are winners and losers. There are companies in every segment, every sector that come out from the crisis stronger than when they began. And there's companies that come out weaker and, the winners can actually reap outsized rewards and outsized 100%. benefits in the midst of these kinds of crises. So what I'd love to hear from you over the next few minutes, Keith, is when you think about what will separate the winners from the losers, and it could be technology, it could be business mindset, it could be um, any other aspect of how you run a law firm, what do you think will, will make the difference and what are the opportunities for you know our listeners to execute it on if if they want to be in that winners batch as opposed to the the losers that are either going to come out of this downturn significantly weakened and or maybe having failed entirely sure no that and that's that's good and i agree because that that is certainly if you take all everything that we've been talking T- talking about you take all that in and you just become defeated well then that that's not the point the, the point is not to make you depressed or to make you feel like all hope is lost like no yeah. there's always hope like look but i think it's so important it, it's it's yeah. not get through april and we'll we'll be right. on the other side of this right i think that's right. the key you need to be thinking about being in this state for months yeah this this is this is a siege right? You, mm-hmm. the, we are all under siege from this virus. The economy is under siege. If you're a lawyer, your law firm is under siege. Sieges last a long time. Yeah. People, but people get through sieges, right? You, you come out of it. it in, this, in this startup world, we talk a lot about a wartime mindset, you know, sure. being on a wartime footing versus a peacetime footing. And I do think, yep. you know, we're at war with uh, an invisible virus, but it, the, Think about even a full-blown war would, would not have the economic impacts that that, that this has had. So yeah, it's yeah, yeah. So so <clears throat> yeah, I think. And before we even get into the 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 technology piece of it, which is uh, uh, a is again, and I, I'll want to talk more about leverage with that. But I definitely think, and you keyed in. So the, like the first step is, and you mentioned this was was mindset. Like that's got to be your first state, and that's why I I'm I'm going. I'm about to be like full court press advocating, and this is sort of my first public talking about it with you. Uh, like we all just need to take a really real look at this. Like stop acting like you're gonna get through April or May, or I'm sorry, stop acting like you're gonna get through to be really real 2020. Like this, like I earliest, and again, unless a miracle happens, earliest recovery, fourth quarter 2021. That's my, if I had to make a prognostication right mm-hmm. now, I think that's the earliest time where we begin to have real recovery. 
So, I mean, that's the mindset shift. You need to be thinking about this, not in terms of days, not in terms of weeks, not in terms of months. You need to be thinking in years. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, that's so big. And um, what this is doing, and as I think you and I talked about this sometime in the past few weeks, uh, is that this is, uh, this isn't changing the world. Like not everything's different. This is accelerating change, right? I think this is exposing change that would have naturally occurred in the legal industry over the next five to 10 years is now going to happen in the next 12 to 18 months. Yeah. So I, I, think- I had a slightly more aggressive take and said five to 10 days, but I think that's, that's the kind of technical <laughs> change sure. that needs to happen for yes. a firm to survive. Like, I, I think that's the, yes. you need to be thinking about how do I accomplish? And I, I agree with you hundred percent, Keith. I, I think the change we would have seen organically over the course of, what might have been measured in tens of years, even when you think about the impacts on courts, for example, sure. we're going to see so much change in terms of how courts operate that even measuring in decades might not be the right time scale. Like without nope. a catalyst and a forcing factor, they probably would not have ever changed to be Agreed. the way they'll look in six months from now. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it, uh, I mean, as a, another data point to that, I, would, I was recently talking with somebody who was head of one of the largest process service companies in the United States. And they said since March 1 to, to April 1, the volume of uh, process of service that uh, service of process that they were doing decreased by 50%. Wow. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that, that should tell you how much litigation is drying up, right? The courts are closed, you know, and they're, and they're going to be closed for the foreseeable future. And they've got to figure out how to do everything you're talking about remote. Well, then how do you serve people process then if it's, you know, that becomes a dangerous thing. What do you do alternatively with that? You, you, but, um, you zoom bomb their zoom calls and, and serve. You do. <laughs> like, ah, you served. You see this, see this show up on a zoom call. I'm going <laughs> um, to go patent that idea right after this phone call. You probably should. It's worth That could be patentable in the United States. We patent anything. Um, the uh, but but yeah, so so to circle back, the mindset is the first one. Get in the get get the time frame in your head, and then and then don't don't allow that to defeat you. You do need to be an optimist. Like if you're not an optimist, you're you're gonna fail. I mean, you got to think you can get through it. Yeah. Um, and so that and that needs to be. And I think. Uh, the, and by the way, that's that's a just to dig into that point around mindset sure. and being optimist. I think that. Living with that duality uh, is really what the entrepreneurial spirit is about. And if you're going to be na- a lawyer that successfully sure. navigates this, I think it's living with what seems like a contradiction in your own mind, which is being realistic about how grim the situation is and maybe even how unlikely the odds of survival are. You know, the startup world, for example, nine out of 10 startups fail. Right. No rational yep. person takes that bet. But entrepreneurs do because they think they're going to be the one out of 10 and they've got the conviction and the mindset. And that's such a, an important part of, you know, mindset shift for many lawyers that skew toward risk aversion and, and, and thinking through worst case scenarios. And that I think just bias is a mindset to one that is 100%. by default, not going to navigate this crisis in a productive way. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, law schools, particularly American law schools, I mean, you know, they do, they've done the numerous studies that, you know, post law school, like the rate of pessimism in lawyers is way higher out of right. any other exactly. professional service. Yeah. Um, and, and again, it's, it's that they teach you to be risk averse and, and they teach you how to do risk mitigation. And so that, but you have to ditch that. And so you do need to be very realistic about looking at the risks in the world right now. Um, I mean, you need to sit down and just do like, I don't know, like the most basic business thing ever, like do a SWOT analysis of your firm, mm-hmm. you know, like, but, but I guarantee you right now, 50% of the people who listen to this right now are like, what's a SWOT analysis? Cause right. like, that's not, that's not ever anything that would ever come up in a typical like law school environment or even a, a typical law firm, unless they're again, have this mindset of like, I'm again, it's that separation that being a lawyer is a profession a law firm is a business and those are two separate things. And just because you're a good lawyer doesn't mean you're good at being at running a business. Yeah. And to your point around law school, there's not a single business class in most law school 
curriculums, right? So this is, this is not, I, I think lawyers on average, highly intelligent, highly capable people that could soak this stuff up and do a great job of running their law firm as a business. But um, you know, what we see uh, often is that the, the training isn't there and the know-how isn't there as a result. And, and the tools you would apply to a scenario like this, like a SWOT analysis, are simply not in the training, which I do think is a, a failing of, of the average law school curriculum, to be, to be sure. Oh, oh, yeah, for sure. And I mean, let's just, you know, when you were in college and you were in the law school, you know, across the, the, the lawn, there was this other really big, fancy building full of graduate students. Those were all the MBAs. Let's act like they're there and that we mm-hmm. can walk. It, we're not too good to walk across the lawn and listen to some of what they're saying, you know? Um, I think that's, that, that, again, that's all in the mindset. Like, look, you've yeah. got to get smart about business first. Like, if, if you can't look at the, the, the broad economic trends, if you can't look at what's going on in the world, begin to understand what all that means, take in that data, be able to understand the industry, understand all the way then down to the micro level, like, okay, what county are you in? And like, who, you know, have you done, um, you know, uh, a competitive analysis? Like, who are your competitors? Like, what are they doing? Like, do you understand how your firm fits into the legal, your local legal economy? You know, who is doing what? And because you can't just be inward looking, you've got to look at everybody else. Like, all right, our firm has three attorneys and we do, uh, you know, practice areas X, Y, and Z. All right, let's go find other firms that are that size and then do these practice areas and let's learn everything we can about them. But, you know, do they, what is their web presence like? Uh, who are their, do they have some way to figure out who, what their typical client is? Uh, can you uh, know what their marketing looks like? You know, do, do you have any inclination of the type of tools or technology they use? I mean, and, and see how you stack up, you know, are you ahead of them? Are you average or are you behind? You know, and like, that's gotta be the start. And, and so once you you start to do all that and understand where you fit into the legal economy, and then you begin to realize, all right, <clears throat> particularly in this, this distance environment where we're not, I mean, the likelihood of, of meeting clients in any significant fashion are going away. Court time is, you know, again, this is going to be months before we figure all this out in some significant manner. Um, <clears throat> I mean, you, cold, hard economic analysis, particularly if you have staff. I mean, I think, uh, you know, that too many lawyers. And, and, and by that, do you mean look at your cash flow, figure out just how do you yes. survive this thing? Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, I mean, this is where cash discipline is king right? Like, can you just juggle in your head, you know, exactly, you know, what your overhead is, how much revenue do you come have, have coming in? Where do you, uh, where are you getting your new clients? What, are you able to sit there and, and do have like an adjusted tracking system of, you know, when clients come in, uh, you know, what is their uh, average lifetime value? Um, everything that a typical business would would know yeah. about their yeah. business, law firms don't know. It's insane. Um, like it's yeah. really crazy. Um, and and that's where. <clears throat> so you, you've got to wrap your head around all that. And and I think that's where you just cold hard economic analysis. The first thing that again you have to do as a firm is you got to try and get out of your lease, whatever it is. If you've got a space, man, get out, whatever yeah. you can. But then the next thing is you're going to have to eliminate staff. I mean, there's just no getting around it. You, if you have a bloated or inefficient staff, they are gone. That That is yeah. period. Now, I, what people are going to push back and be like, well, I can't run my practice. Otherwise, what do I do? And, and I'm not trying to make this be like a commercial for you or for me, but that's literally why technology exists. You know, I mean, that's where yeah. Smart lawyers, smart, and not even any smart business person who is running any business of any nature uh, will look to technology now as leverage, yep, right? How technology. can technology, that, I mean, that's, that is the answer. Again, there's, there's people leverage, there's capital leverage, and there's technology leverage. We've already established that we've got to eliminate staff because for economics, 
we know that lawyers can't take on <laughs> capital funding. So all that you're left with is technology. Like you have to get smart about technology. Again, not organically in a five to 10 year term period, like in the next six, I mean, and I'm being generous somehow. And that I, you've I, got, yeah. Obviously, as you pointed out, Keith, we, we both have horses in this race, but I, I think of technology as a force multiplier where you 100%. will have to cut staff to the, to the bone, but your remaining staff need to be more productive than they've ever been. And yep. Uh, attaching technology to them into your firm. I, I think this crisis moved technology from what somehow managed to be in the year 2020 previous to COVID-19, uh, a, a nice to have that forward-looking law firms used. And I think to our earlier discussion around what separates survivors from thrivers in this crisis, the thrivers are gonna be technology adopters and figuring out how do you adapt technology to this new world and the folks that fail, I, I, when we do a root cause analysis of what firms struggled, when we're two or three years out from this pandemic and are able to do that RCA, we'll understand that technology was at the foundation of many of those failures and failure to adapt in purely like a, a Darwinian sense uh, was was at the, the root of that. Now, now Keith, we're, running uh, low on time. It, it's been a super engaging and, and fascinating discussion. And we could, I, I feel like going out and getting a glass of scotch and talking to you for the rest of the afternoon, but we'll, we'll, uh, we can we'll make that happen. Up, we can make we'll, that happen. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll pick up the discussion again, but, but for the purpose of this podcast, I'd love to, to wrap up talking about um, community and sure. you, you run a legal community called lawyer smack. And, yep. and one of the ways I'd love to fold this into the conversation is, you know, when we're talking about the lawyers, and I know there's some lawyers listening and, and legal professionals more broadly listening to this podcast saying to themselves, you know, oh shit, I fall into this category of people that Keith's talking about that don't know about business and don't know what LTV or CAC stand for. Where do I go to learn about that? And I can either go back to school and get my MBA um, and, and, there's probably going to be a surge in distance learning programs to do that over the coming months. Option oh, yeah. one, option two is finding somebody who's been there, done that and just knows their shit and connecting with them. Can, can you tell us a little bit about how you think about more broadly the, this education question and how do you get up to speed on the, the skills that all of a sudden went from nice to have to crucial uh, in this crisis and, and how communities like, lawyer smack might layer into helping people navigate this crisis sure yeah so <clears throat> that's super excellent point particularly around uh learning and education you know i think a, another kind of mindset shift people need to have particularly around technology and the way the world is is that <laughs> education is not something that you did when you were 18 to 24 years old and then you put it on the shelf and you never touch it again if that is your mindset towards learning and education, that is garbage and you should get rid of it. Um, to be successful in as dynamic of a world as we exist in right now with rapid, I mean, outside of the entire COVID situation, just the rapid pace of technology, Uber, Uber did not exist in 2010. Now it has literally replaced the word taxi in the vocabulary. My son doesn't know what a taxi is. He knows what an Uber is. Right. Right. That's insane. Like if, if you're yeah. not on the ball and learning all the time, you are falling behind period that you, the idea that you can just, you, that we're in some type of environment that you can coast that's gone. That yeah. We are, we do not have time for coasting. Yeah. Um, so, so <clears throat> if, so one is just to recognize the fact that, you have to be willing, willing and wanting to improve yourself and learn all the time. So one, maybe some distance learning stuff that's tough, but to your point is community. I mean, that, that was something I identified, you know, not even two years ago when I started Lawyer Smack, but I mean, 10 years ago when I first started my blog, Associates Mind, and, and what attracted me to the, the legal blog world a decade ago were there were all these really like, established lawyers who were veterans and having really frank open discussions about their practice areas and what they were doing. And that, and then, and that was sort of the precursor to social media. And, 
And I think that exists now for a lot of people is that, okay, they, they feel like they want to get on, on social media and they have these conversations that, you know, there's like the law Twitter mm -hmm. where there are like groups or LinkedIn groups or Facebook groups, you know, my only issue or my hypothesis around a lot of that is that as a lawyer, you can't go talk shop <laughs> in public on Facebook or Twitter. Like that doesn't work. You can't do that. Um, you don't, I mean, one, if particularly, if, I mean, you should never be sharing anything privileged, but really you just can't be exposing like your vulnerability or weakness in such a way in, in public as a lawyer, like that right. doesn't fly. Yeah. Um, you don't want your clients hanging out in the same Facebook groups that you're having really vulnerable conversations on. Right. Yeah. You, you've got to, and you've got to knit that stuff in the back. <laughs> this was like 2014 ish, maybe 2015 when I, when I was still practicing. I had a client message like in, in public on Twitter, like on my normal timeline, I'd said something and I, I like had delayed sending him an invoice by like three or four days. And uh, he was, he just responded to me on Twitter. He's like, Hey man, can you get me uh, that invoice that we had talked about the other day? And I had to like pick up the phone and be like, I'll change his name, John. Uh, I was like, <laughs> and he's he, he, head of a technology software, little startup down here. And I was like, John, you cannot, to have public conversations with me on social media. I'm your lawyer. That's not how this works, you know? Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, send me a text. <laughs> yeah, something. Even that's not great. <laughs> like, um, you know, it was like, uh, uh, you've got, there, there's a space to, to you lawyers. It's why, again, this is not some mind-blowing thing. Uh, bar associations exist, right? Lawyers have been joining professional associations with other attorneys for years, you know, from the national level to your state level, to your municipal level, to your practice specific area level, you know, from, from the ABA, which is its own can of worms. I'll be nice to them. <laughs> um, to your state levels, which for me in Alabama, we have a unified bar. So meaning if you're a lawyer and you're licensed, you're a member of the bar, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but then I'm, you know, to, uh, the, the Birmingham bar that I'm a, a member of to, to something like lawyer smack, which is really around technology savvy lawyers who are again of a certain mindset who want to have a private space to talk with other lawyers, you know, to talk shop in a very, in a very frank and open way with other people. Um, that's, that is there. And I think, I think that's more important than ever because you, you can't go to the, can't go to the annual picnic anymore. You know, you can't go to the holiday party anymore. All yeah. the places that you would used to maybe go and socialize with other attorneys, um, that's gone. And so, yeah. And maybe Keith, you could talk a little bit about just what Slack is. Um, because I, I think probably many of our listeners have heard of Slack. They may, they may not be Slack users. Um, but especially as you, you know, I, I think most of us are familiar with listservs and kind of all the sure. pros and cons that go along with listservs. They can kind of be a fire hose of stuff you don't need to or should pay attention to. Um, you know, Slack has these concepts like channels and, and, and other stuff that let you really kind of segment what you're paying attention to. Can you just talk a little bit about what that looks like in Lawyer Smack? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it just offers a, a much higher degree of granularity. So you know, if you're on a listserv, suddenly you get an email of, hey, does anybody need this office furniture that we're getting? You know, you start to get just junk. It's just this deluge of, of stuff coming at you. Whereas again, the, the structure of Slack is, is to your point, yeah. there are channels and, and you just, <clears throat> in Lawyer Smack, there's well over a hundred channels. There's a Clio channel. Um, <laughs> nice. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> um, all right. So, and you know, the channels range from you know, states to California or some, you know, Texas to practice areas, uh, you know, uh, there's IP and PI, you know, and if you're, a, even though those letters are very similar, <laughs> the, the ordering of them means very different things to, right. to a lawyer. And, and realistically speaking, the, the PI lawyers and the IP lawyers don't actually have that much to talk to each other. So they self, you get to self segment. So if you're a lawyer who's in, California and does IP work. So you can join California, you join IP, and then let's say you're into, you know, the thing for me is we're flexible enough. I mean, there are 
uh, there's a parenting channel and there's like car talk and there's you know if, if people do have i because again i don't control it at this point in time it's 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 alive it's its own organic thing so people you know form channels around topics they want to talk about and yeah. if you want to talk about those things you go in there and you have those conversations if not then you don't you know and so it 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 eliminates the headaches of a listserv and it's all lawyers you've got to be a lawyer to be in this community right yes jd only so you've, you've got to send me some type of verification, uh, usually a link to your state bar directory or you know, a picture of your, your license or something. Um, I review that and then um, you get, and there's a fee. I mean, just like a bar association, there's a fee associated with it. Um, and you join and then you're in there and it's, it's an annual fee that you pay once a year, just like bar dues. Mm -hmm. And um, then you're in there and you get to have conversations with people around whatever topic you want. Um, and then, you know, and here lately in the past month, we're having, we're doing this, we're doing private Zoom calls with the community and I'm, I'm bringing on cool. a variety of, of people. Um, I've had uh, my buddy, uh, my friend, my best friend that I grew up with, he is the, uh, he's a uh, kind of the head of thoracic surgery for LSU and he is at, he's at the safety net hospital for New Orleans. And so we spoke to him about like what it is like ground zero in New Orleans, which for people who don't know has one of the highest per capita death rates in the world mm -hmm. uh, for COVID. So we spoke to him about like, what is that like? Um, I had Zach and Bromowitz on last week. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Legal tech. We talked legal tech. Um, uh, this, I think, I think, Tomorrow, tomorrow, uh, Stephen Chung, who is a tax lawyer, he writes for Above the Law. We're going to talk uh, taxes in the current situation. Um, I had uh, Josh Holt, who uh, runs BigLawInvestor.com, which is kind of the sort of premier personal finance site for the big law end of the spectrum, really for all lawyers. If you want to get smart about your personal money, go look at Josh. Um, so we're, we're having these private conversations too. So, and again, anybody can come if you want to talk. We're, ha we're just trying to, again, facilitate community and conversations, you know, exclusively between lawyers and a, and a frank and open atmosphere that's private. So you, yeah. you can, it's a, it's a safe I, space. I, yeah, I think it's a hugely important community and, and kudos to, to you for, for building it, Keith. And I, I think especially in a time of isolation and social distancing and, and everything else that, uh, you know, may last much longer than the average person thinks those kind of communities, uh, are, are more crucial than ever. Uh, Keith, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Really enjoyed it to, to wrap up. I wanted to see if you had a, a parting thought to leave our listeners with speaking to them, you know, either as, as legal professionals or, or just as people. Um, you know, I think probably this crystallizes to me in a big way, uh, and this was true beforehand, but I think this really puts in people's face that I try to remind myself when I interact with other people, um, is that, uh, everyone is suffering, right? Every, like everyone has something going on in their lives that's hard or difficult. And I think <laughs> if you didn't know that before, you know that now, right? And I think it's important for all of us to try and be, <clears throat> you know, be patient, be kind, particularly as legal professionals right now. If you're a lawyer, ex extend grace to opposing mm -hmm. counsel, mm -hmm. right? Extend grace to opposing counsel, extend grace to your clients, extend grace to the courts, you know, don't, don't be impatient. Recognize yeah. that, that we're all going through something right now. Um, and you know, uh, man, this is just, this is just a, more than ever, it's this is the time for the golden rule, right? You know, you, you got to treat people the way you want to be treated. You can't, we're, we're, we're all trying to figure this out now that we, we talk to each other through this, this piece of metal and glass, and yeah. that's the only way we're going to see each other. And, and that's hard. And we're all trying to figure it out. And, um, I think if there's one thing we need through all this, as we're trying to, get our mindset right as we're trying to learn how to adopt technology, whether it be practice management, whether that be the client management, like case status or joining an online community like lawyer smack. Um, you know, this is the time 
Not to say that this, you don't need to be urgent <laughs> with your response to things, but how you deal with people, you need to be patient. Is yeah, that, that's more I than think, anything I think is important. I think grace is a great word and something we need a lot more of in the world uh, right now. Well, Keith, thanks so much for joining us today. Really enjoyed our conversation. A lot of valuable perspective there. I look forward to reading your opus on what lies ahead uh, for, for legal. And let's have a follow-up conversation when that's done. I feel like there's a lot of loose threads I'd love to pick up in a future conversation here. 100%. Let's do it. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com. 